You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Welcome, everybody. Uh, starting the prayer works to get people quiet. So thank you. Um, we are continuing to work through the Shorter Catechism. I don't believe there are any announcements this morning, but it, I'll open it up. Any announcements that we need to make sure everybody's aware of? Okay, I will keep putting on your radar the men's retreat uh, in March, March 17th, 18th. So put that on your calendar, guys. We'll be down in Hiram at a little camp down there. Um, so put that on your, your calendar and registration info to be determined or is, is forthcoming. Um, we have copies of the catechism here. Uh, Ron will give those out if you would like a copy to follow along with us. If you would like one to take home, if you want one just for the day, you can take it and bring it back up and put it in the bucket. If you want it forever, it's yours uh, and you can use it and memorize it and um, make use of it. Uh, you can also get it online, on your phone, all kinds of places. So we are today mostly going to be discussing justification, justification. Um, and so I have a few resources. This is an incredibly important topic, and I've got a few resources that I want to highlight and just put in your hands so you can see um, and touch. The first is a little pamphlet we have out here in the narthex. So if you want one of these, take it. Um, after, after Sunday school, go, go grab it in the narthex. Uh, this is a little pamphlet called What is Justification by Faith Alone by J.V. Fesco. Wonderful, great little introduction. So highly recommend it. We have a few copies up there. If there's only one left, take it. Uh, it's yours. So I'll pass that around for you to look at. Um, and I need to restock some of our books we have out there. The second book is, um, it's a chapter in this uh, bigger book, by Fesco as well, A Theology of the Westminster Standards. So he looks at, at um, the whole standards, the catechisms, uh, the confession, and talks about it in different chapters, in different headings. And what, there's an entire chapter on justification that's fantastic, gives you a little bit of the history of the Westminster Assembly that wrote this, uh, their, what their debates were like. It gives you a history of what they were uh, working against, other views, and an explanation of the Westminster Doctrine of Justification. So I'll pass that around. Wonderful book. Highly recommend it for studying the confession. And then finally, um, I have this book by Michael Horton. Uh, this is actually one of two volumes. It's a two-volume work, so double that thickness. It's the, the gold standard today for, uh, for justification. It was written just a few years ago. What was it? 2018. Um, it's the gold standard. No matter who you are, whether you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Pentecostal or whoever, um, you will have to deal with Horton's uh, book on justification you know, in a scholarly way. If you're a scholar in any of these in any of these traditions. This is the new kind of definitive work. Volume one is all history going through the church, church history on justification. And volume two is a biblical and theological construction of the, of the, of the doctrine. So I was rereading this this week and it's just phenomenal. Um, so I highly, highly commend that to you. It's not uh, an introductory piece though. So I wouldn't recommend that to be your first stop in thinking about justification. Um, so those are going around. You can look at them and um, we'll get them back up here at the end. So we're in questions 32 and 33 of the confession or the, the shorter catechism. So let's, let's turn over to question 32. We'll deal with this briefly before we get on to 33, which is justification proper. 
So question 32, I'll just go ahead and, and read it and make a few comments here. Uh, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So this is uh, what I call an umbrella uh, umbrella question where it's really setting the trajectory for the next few questions. So we have uh, the num- next questions are justification, adoption, sanctification, benefits. And then we have questions about not just in this life, but also at death. And another question about at the resurrection. So what are the benefits of salvation? What does salvation consist of? And this takes us back as we've looked at the last couple of weeks to this idea of the ordo salutis, the Latin, the Latin term for the order of salvation. This is a logical frame framework by which we're connecting these important theological documents or uh, doctrines to make sense of how are we saved. There's a logical order that is, uh, that is biblically there to show us the steps, the pieces of salvation. Now, again, another piece of clarification. One, the Ordo Salutis is not necessarily a temporal progression. It's not like, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and put it on the screen. This is what we saw last week. Um, it does, it's, it's not that... Um, we're effectually called, and then later down the road, we have faith, and then later down the road, we have union with Christ. These three pieces of the ordo are instantaneous, but logically, we need to keep them in this order. Election happens in eternity past when God sets his love upon his people. And so there is an elect people from eternity past, as we've talked about many times. And then in time, that election comes in time and space as we are effectually called. This was the question last week, but for a brief um, review, effectual calling is that inward work of the Holy Spirit where we are regenerated. We are made new in our mind, our wills, and our affections. We're made new so that then we put faith in Christ. So we are made new internally, and that internal effectual calling, that regeneration, comes through the outward proclamation of the gospel. So God uses the external call, the external call that goes to everybody, to then internally make new, regenerate those that are his, those that have been elect. So those who are um, effectually called then have faith. Part of that effectual calling is being given faith, having new wills that now desire Christ and new minds and new affections that love him and have faith in him. And then in faith, we are brought in union with Christ. So the last two questions really put these pieces together for us, really all four of these and different places in the confession and catechisms. These places, these pieces come together. So the question today is this, This effectual calling, what are the benefits that come from effectual calling? And another way we could even ask this question is, what benefits flow from union with Christ? Uh, Because these things are all uh, connected. Theologians will typically say uh, this union with Christ then has these several benefits that we're speaking of. It's not wrong. The confession says they flow from effectual calling. But uh, maybe more properly, theologically speaking, these are part of our union with Christ. And so there's a number of these benefits. We're going to see justification. Adoption is the next question, which I think we're going to skip and we're going to go straight to sanctification next week. Come back to adoption. And glorification are those benefits we receive after death and upon the resurrection. And then there's other benefits that accompany or flow from these. So in our union with Christ, that's, again, kind of an umbrella term that has all of these benefits. There's a lot of discussion and debate among Reformed theologians. How do these benefits relate to one another? Uh, is, ju- is union with Christ um, well, I'm not even going to go into the options. Uh, there's, there's debates, and we can talk about that another time. But they're all benefits that flow from union with Christ. 
and our effectual call. Okay, so that's the preliminary question 32 um, that I want to, uh, wanted to say. Any questions or comments here? There's other names for these categories, like regeneration. That's right, yeah, we, yeah, that's right. So we have that here, effectual calling, regeneration. Um, that's right, yeah, so there's other, some other terms that you might, you might hear. But a general uh, a Protestant or uh, evangelical person disagree with any of these points? Yes, um, the big point of disagreement is here. What comes first, effectual calling or faith, or regeneration or faith? Um, does faith come before our regeneration, or does regeneration come before our faith? That's, that's one of the big questions here. So um, an Arminian um, and most uh, general evangelicals today would often say um, faith comes before regeneration. I trust in Christ, then I'm made new and regenerate. We say, the Reformed has always said, no, we're made new, therefore then we can have faith in Christ. We say we're dead and we can't have faith apart from regeneration. But a lot of evangelicals would, would default to this, well, I trust in Jesus, then I'm born again. And we say, no, we're born again, therefore then we trust in Christ. And that's a, you know, a whole debate for another day. Um, Jacob, um, when he taught at CVCA, he would make all the students write a paper on this question, what comes first, faith or regeneration, and give them a couple of passages of scriptures they have, they have to deal with in their paper. Um, and it was always fascinating. They had to talk to one of their pastors about the question as well. So uh, that was a great exercise. Um, and a lot of them would come out and say, well, my pastor says regeneration or faith precedes re- regeneration. But I think the Bible says uh, it's regeneration first. So it's interesting um, teaching them Socratically, which was a great way to do it. So good, good question. That's probably the biggest, the biggest piece here. Election, the definition of election would be different for others as well. Sometimes election would be put here. After, it would be faith, then, then regeneration, and then election um, in some people's view. So this is a distinctively reformed, reformed um, ordo, as they say. Okay, let's go to question 33, which is justification proper. And we'll spend our 30 minutes from here uh, on this topic. Um, I'll read it. There's obviously a lot of words here, and we'll go phrase by phrase through it. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. All right, there's a whole lot there. Um, And justification, remember, conceptually, putting us back here, conceptually, we are regenerated, given faith, and then in faith, we are united to Christ. And this is one of those benefits of union with Christ. In Christ, we are justified. We're justified. And this is one of the most important categories for Christians to understand. Probably the most important category, uh, because uh, in addition to sin and God and those kinds of things, this is the most important category because it is the bedrock of what we believe is true of Christians. Christians are justified. Christians stand righteous before God. Uh, We're going to look next week at sanctification and see these two categories side by side and why it's critical for us to understand these two categories. As we're reading scripture, is it speaking of our justification, which is what God has done once and for all? Or is it speaking of our sanctification, this process of us becoming new? Because when these concepts are conflated, then our justification, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, our justification is something that is becoming in us. We are growing more and more justified. And that's not how scripture speaks. But it's confusing if we don't keep these categories clear of justification and sanctification. Justification is a once for all action. 
A once for all declaration and sanctification is an ongoing process. So in these two weeks, I want to keep these, these ideas in our head and make them as clear as possible so we can understand what God has done for his people in justification. You are righteous in his sight for the work of Christ. Uh, John, did you have a comment? That's right. In the Old Testament. That's right. Um, I'm assuming you might be bringing out some of those Old Testament passages that really do bring out justification, even in the Old Testament, was a once act. That's right. That's right. And um, we're not going into that a whole lot today, but the key passage that Paul uses to prove justification by faith alone in his argument is with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. So this, this, the whole New Testament frame is built upon uh, Genesis where Abraham believed the promises of God, had faith in God's promises and righteousness was credited to him. So that's the baseline for justification is even in Abraham, we see it very clearly. And so that's carried throughout all of scripture. Yeah, that's a great, a great point. Um, tomorrow, I grew up on October 31st celebrating Reformation Day. Uh, we were nerds, I guess. Um, but it's that day where uh, October 31st, where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg ch- uh, church door. And they say it's the beginning of the Reformation, kind of, sort of. Um, but that's what we say. And so we celebrate it year after year. And so we weren't Halloween people. We were Reformation Day people in my household uh, growing up. And so, but this is, this is important. This is it's wonderful how it works out time-wise because justification was that core truth that the Reformation was reclaiming from church history. It was saying uh, this has been lost by and large by the church and reclaiming the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And even today, the Roman Catholic Church strenuously denies it. They deny it now uh, more than they ever have. Uh, Even at the Reformation, there were still voices in the Roman Catholic Church that agreed with this. But after the Reformation, uh, with Council of Trent, they vehemently denied it and rejected it and have moved away from it. Okay, now to the language of the catechism directly. I'm, you know, doing one of these, like, just spewing tons and tons of words because I feel like there's so much we've got to get through. So I apologize. Um, but let's, let's work through this answer. Uh, justification is an act, an act of God's free grace. And so we first start with this word, an act, uh, this phrase, an act. This is important, especially as we compare it to sanctification, as we'll look at next week. Sanctification is a work. It's not an act. It's a work. But justification is an act. It is a one-time punctiliar event that occurs. This is something that happens in time, space, and history. There's a moment that someone is justified. And that moment is when they have faith in Christ. And so justification is a, uh, it's a binary category. You either are justified or you are not justified. And there's a moment in time where you cross that bridge from being not justified to being justified. And that is the moment in which we are regenerated and put faith in Christ. That point in time. So there's no becoming justified. There's no, I'm on my journey of justification. None of that. You're either justified or you're not justified. Yes, we're on the journey of sanctification. Yes, we're growing in holiness all of our life. Yes, we're growing in grace, becoming more like Christ. But justification is in or out, one or the other. You're justified or not. Can you believe that you are and not be? Can you believe that you're justified and not be? Yes, you can. You can. You can be putting your hope in yourself and thinking you yourself are justifying yourself because justification looks to Christ as faith in Christ. But if you're looking to something else, you can have a false hope that yes, I'm, I'm good enough. So I'm justified. Um, you can have a false hope or a false faith. Um, and, and, 
and think you're justified but not be. Any, any comments? So, yes. Amen. Amen. That's right. That's right. That's right. It is. Um, this is the most incredible thing because this is, I would posit, justification, being declared righteous, and we'll unfold this hopefully in the next few minutes. Um, justification is the basis on which we are then adopted. We are legally declared righteous, and then now we're adopted as sons. We now are sanctified because we are righteous in God's sight. He has declared us righteous. He then is existentially making us more and more righteous. Our glorification is an outworking of the justification we've already received. It's making in time and space our, our being consistent with what is true in the heavenly courtroom. We're, we will be made holy completely because God has already declared that we are holy. So all the other benefits flow from justification. It's the bedrock of all of the other benefits of salvation. Without it, we have no hope. It's an act, an act of God's free grace. And this is one of those great um, slogans of the Reformation. Grace alone. It's not works. It's not me doing it. It's not me earning it. This is God only who has done this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are justified, Romans 3.24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It is a gift. It is not something we earn. It is not something we are able to do on our own. We don't justify ourselves. This is a free gift of God. Free, not that in it costs us nothing, although that's true. Free meaning God can give it to whoever he wants. God is free to give his grace. So God is the one who's free here. We're not, it's not just, it's a free gift. Yes, it's free to us, but it is God freely giving because he desires and wants to pour out his grace upon his people. Jim? Thank you. Calvin does do a wonderful job talking about this in the Institutes. I appreciate that, Jim. Yes, go to Calvin as a great primary source. And, and you, we often think of Calvin as old, dry, boring. At least that used to be my perception, but it's so full of life and so good and so rich. Absolutely. And it is, so um, uh, Joyce asked the question last week, why does this say God um, why is this God's free grace? And then we went, last week we looked at effectual call and effectual call was a work of God's spirit. So why does it say God's spirit there and God here? And I'm not sure I have much, um, much else to add to that other than what I said last week. But effectual calling, this regeneration is a work of the spirit. We, we call this the spirit doing this in our lives. Yes, on the basis of Christ's work. Yes, um, uh, ordained by the Father to do that. But it is the Spirit who's doing that. Here when we step back to justification, we can either say one of two things. Either this is referring to God the Father, um, and so the Father, um, this is his free grace that he's bestowing, and so maybe we're now, the emphasis is on, on the work of the Father, which I think is possible here. Or we could say this is a more generic term for the three persons of the Trinity because they're all a part of this work. I think either way works um, and however we translate it, but it's not particularly appropriated to the, to the spirit who's doing this work in us. Whereas regeneration, effectual call, will say that's, um, that's the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts. So um, that's an important, important question. And just uh, as we're looking through the, the language, you'll notice these differences between the questions. 
So this is God's free grace. And so what is God's grace doing? There's really two aspects to our justification um, that the confession so clearly puts out for us. So God does this thing punctiliarly in time and space and act of his own free grace, not because we've earned it, not because we're good enough for it. What does he do? First, in this justification, he pardons all of our sins. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are erased. Our sins are no more. As far as the East is from the West, he forgives. He remembers our sins no more. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And here's the key phrase, having forgiven us all our trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that explicitly connects it to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As all of scripture is doing, as we look at the Old Testament sacrifices, pointing us to the work of Christ on the cross and his death there as that sacrificial atonement for us, who is forgiving all of our sins, wiping them all away because he carries them upon his own shoulders on the cross. It's not that our, our sins are just uh, forgotten about and they're, you know, just, just, throw them away. No, God can't let sin go unpunished. And so our sins are forgiven because Christ carried them on the cross and received the judgment that was due for our sin. So we're forgiven because of Christ on the cross. And we'll get to the, um, this language in a minute, this language of imputation. Um, but this is important for us because it is uh, just exactly what we're speaking of. Our Christ was imputed to Christ. Our sin was credited to him, counted to him. He then stood for our sin. Our sin was credited to him. And there's two great imputations that take place in justification. Our sins imputed to Christ, the one who died, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sin was credited to him that he would die in our stead, that we would receive forgiveness. And then we come to the second half of justification, where we are accepted as righteous in his sight. Christ's righteousness is given to us. And as we see in the next phrase, this is that other imputation. Our sin goes to Christ. Christ's righteousness and perfection is credited to us, given to us. And we are then accepted as righteous in his sight. God accepts us. God welcomes us. As God welcomed Adam and Eve in his presence in the Garden of Eden, as Israel was welcomed into the tabernacle, the, the high priest into the Holy of Holies, accepted for the sacrifice that was done, for the purification that was offered, we are now accepted in God's presence. We are accepted, as we'll see next time, or well, in two weeks, so we look at adoption, we're accepted as sons, even. We're accepted because of Christ's work, because of his righteousness given to us. And this goes to the fact that this is a legal declaration. This is a courtroom declaration of innocent, and not just innocent though, but righteous. You're not just forgiving, wiping away all your debts, and now you're back at zero. You're getting credited all of what Christ has done. And so now you get credit for everything he did. All the perfect words he said, all the miracles he performed, all of the kindness he showed, all of his righteous anger that he displayed, all of that is now credited to you. You now stand before God with that righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And so we are accepted. What a wonderful thing. We are accepted. That's what we yearn for, is it not? To be accepted by others, to be accepted by friends and loved ones. But we know the bedrock truth here is that because of Christ, you, looking to Christ, are accepted by God. He receives you into his presence. And what great comfort there is in this, right? This is what Mary Alice was saying earlier, why this is so glorious and wonderful. You now are accepted. You're no longer cast out, but you are his forever and ever. So we're accepted as righteous, but this, we can't confuse this with sanctification. It's not that we're accepted as righteous because we are existentially righteous, because I'm living a righteous life. No, I'm accepted as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Uh, I love this, this quote by John Brown of Haddington, um, 1782. I don't know much about him. Some old Scottish Presbyterian pastor, one of them. Um, but this is great in his systematic theology. He writes this justification in scripture never means the making of persons inherently holy and righteous, but the holding and declaring them righteous as in a court of judgment. That's the classic reformed understanding, the biblical understanding, as John Brown pointed out, of justification, that we are held as being righteous. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. We are held and declared righteous. We're not made inherently holy yet. That's the working out of justification that will happen in eternity when we're glorified, made perfect in holiness. We're yearning for that and waiting for that, but not yet. We are, though, still declared righteous in Christ, in, in, in the eyes of God because of Christ. And then let me get to this through this next one. Uh, we've been talking around it and saying this over and over. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The other Reformation slogan of Christ alone, right? What is our justification? It's not because of my good works, not because I did one act of faith and then God does the rest. No, this is 100% God. This is all because of Christ, what Christ did. It's not like Christ did 99% and I just need to do that final 1% to bridge the chasm. This is Christ only, Christ alone. And the, and the basis is that imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And we can talk about imputation. What does that mean? Um, th- there's a whole lot there. I'd refer you to Romans uh, 5, where Paul speaks of we're either imputed with the sin of Adam or we're imputed uh, the righteousness of Christ. Um, all of us stand under one representative or the other. And that representative we stand up under, we are imputed his Christ's righteousness or Adam's sin. And uh, what's important to another term, another concept to contrast, to help us understand a little bit more, it's imputation, not infusion. And that's the Roman Catholic um, uh, doctrine, is only for the righteousness of Christ infused in us. And so you can think of like an IV, you know, we're being infused with medicine that makes us healthy. That's how the Roman Catholics um, understand justification. It's an infusion of righteousness to make us healthier. Instead of the legal category of in or out, declared righteous or not, there's this ongoing process of justification. Now, there's an ongoing process of sanctification. They conflate the two together um, in a a very um, um, uh, harmful way for the church because they deny, ultimately, the work of Christ for us because now Christ is doing something. He's infusing something into us, but we're called um, to to ensure our justification. There's no um, 
uh, 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 assurance of salvation in the Roman Catholic Church because you can't know. And it's a, it's a damnable heresy, they say, of, of Protestants to have any assurance. Say, no, you can't know because maybe you're being infused with righteousness, but you might throw it all out. You might reject it all and decide that, you know, at your last day, I don't want that. Uh, whereas we'd say, no, you are declared righteous in Christ and you will persevere in this as we'll see in a later question. We will persevere in this because of God's goodness. Right. Why is there a refusal to see what's written? I don't know. I mean, we can um, postulate, um, but there was a strong reaction to the Reformation. Um, and I think most of it comes from there. Not that this wasn't taught before the Reformation. It absolutely was. But when the Reformation said, no, it's an imputed alien righteousness, you know, Luther's term, an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness that becomes mine, the Roman Catholic Church reacted strongly to that and said, we don't want anything to do with that. And then they codified clearly that if you believe in an imputed alien righteousness, you are anathema. And so it, a lot of it today is because of that strong reaction they had to the Reformation. And Luther and Calvin and all the reformers, they, their desire was not to start a new church. They were trying to reform the church from within. And they were kicked out. They were the ones expelled, said, no, you have no place here. You're not a Christian. And so they had to, by necessity, start their own churches. They were trying to persuade. But the church said, no, we want none of it. And why? I'm not sure I can answer that question. Uh, people far, far smarter than I uh, would have better better. Um, ideas than I would. Well, would it also be because of the different view of Scripture? That Scripture, you know, is not, yeah. is not the highest, is not the only high authority. That's right. That's a great point. So, we have the so yeah, it is clear Scripture, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's great. Great point. That's right. Great point. Because the, the Pope, the tradition, has as much say as Scripture does, and they can reinterpret it however they want. Right. So I think that's probably one of the reasons also for the split because they rejected the authority of Pope. That's right. That's right. Yes. Very good. Uh, we'll go Rob first. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. Um, are there groups out there that take the righteousness, like I am righteous, and say they're not sinners because the Bible says that they're righteous? Some would have a uh, a perfectionist view, like Wesleyans traditionally are perfectionistic. And so they believe that this righteousness is attainable and achievable in this life. It's not in justification, you're, you are existentially righteous, but they say it's achievable in this life. And so every Christian should be perfectly righteous in this life. Um, but no, I'm not sure of any, I'm sure there are groups that say you're, you're justified and therefore you can never sin again. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of that. Ray? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that, yeah, that's ultimately right. Yes, it is the deceit of the evil one who uh, does not want the truth to go out. Um, and so we can say that, certainly. Yeah. Mm. So good. Very good. Yes. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Amen. That's right. 
Exactly. Well said. Yeah, that's a great point. That all of our sins, this in justification, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven. All of them. And there's, there's no, you know, that final sin, oh, if you commit the unforgivable sin of suicide, right, you're not. No, that's not true. Every sin is forgiven because of Christ. Yeah. I was just thinking, why is deeply rooted in us mm-hmm. as human beings? And Jesus himself said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's right. That's right. That's right. There is a desire um, to want to contribute something to my salvation. There's a desire that I want to, you know, I, I feel like I need to do something. This is too good to be true. I've got to do something. And in our pride, we refuse to allow the grace of God to enter in. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think that's exactly the answer to Teresa's question, which is a great question why does the Catholic Church hold on to this? And what you so clearly articulated is that justification is a non-renovated meaning. We're not right. changed right. in justification. And uh, I know I always get teased for my analogies, so I have to have an analogy here. It's kind of like we're, we're cast in a dungeon because of our sin. And in, in the court, which we're not present, the accuser accuses us Christ pays uh, the penalty. We're justified in that moment. Mm-hmm. We have no idea. We're not that you know. It doesn't change us. We're still right. in the prison until, as you'll get to, what happens in the sanctification. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's that is such a powerful um, way to think about justification, and it ought to just humble us. Yeah, that's right. And, and the joy of that is it's no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel, no matter what's going on in your life, this is objectively true for those who look to Christ. This is true. No matter what your day's like, no matter what your week's life, that's why we call all Christians who look to Christ to come to the table every week. If you're a member of Redeemer Church, you need to come to the table every single week. You can't, you can't absent yourself from it because this is Christ reminding you you are justified. Now, if you have unrepentant sin and the church puts you under, under discipline for, for that, um, then you cannot come because you're not repentant of your sin. But this is a point for you to come every week, even if you had a bad week, even if you don't feel like it, even if this is the last thing you want to do, come to the table where Christ reminds us of this objective reality and strengthens us in our sanctification, which we'll come to next time. There's nothing we need to earn it. That's right. That's right. Amen. Amen. That's right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah, what Pete said is if, if we can have assurance, then it undercuts the authority of the priesthood and the necessity of the priesthood. And so we won't need conf- the confessional anymore or the absolution or, or the last rites or all these things the priests can do. We don't need that anymore if we can have assurance in Christ. And if Christ did it all, a once for all offering. Um, really good stuff. Let's, uh, let's go to the next Last, uh, the last point here, um, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Well, how can I be saved? Now, when we use the term saved, salvation, it includes justification. 
It's also all these other benefits, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. All these things are part of salvation. But what is that? What, what is that, that, the answer to that question? What must I do to be saved? It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Christ. Faith alone. That's that great, uh, the other slogan from the Reformation. Faith alone. It's faith alone by which you receive the righteousness of Christ. It's not faith and then make sure you do your one thing. Makes, you know, make sure you have the one work to receive salvation. No, faith is not a work. Faith is an instrument of reception, of receiving, and faith itself is a gift of God. Faith is not something we conjure up in in ourselves. This is something given to us, and it's the method of receiving, the instrument of receiving this great salvation. It's not a meritorious virtue that we work in ourselves. It's not the one work we do to earn salvation, but we as the confession says elsewhere, receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. Jason? Yes. The Lord Jesus said you must be born again. Is this taken all what you're talking about when he said you must be born again? That's right. So we must be born again. Uh, I'll go back here. That speaking here, born again is the same thing as effectual calling, regeneration. Same thing. You must be born again. You must have, you must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And in that, you have faith and you have union with Christ and all of these things. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's where, um, oh, I had a thought. Where'd it go? I lost it. I'm sorry. But yes, it, Rob, did you, did you pick it up for me? <laughs> Well, and that's exactly what, what uh, Nicodemus says. Do I get back in my mother's womb to be born again? Like he's exactly like it was comical to him, as was your analogy to all of us. Um, that's right. It's comical. But Jesus says you must be born again by the spirit. The wind blows the, in the Greek, the wind and spirit, same word. The wind blows, the spirit blows wherever he pleases. We know not where he goes, but we see the effects. We see the effects of being born again. And so... Um, Oh, I'm losing my thoughts here on, on being born again. Um, but yes, that's exactly right. And so this is all under the rubric. And that, that's the question that was asked in 32. What are the benefits of effectual calling? What are the benefits of being born again? You can use that word, insert that word, or regeneration. What are the benefits of it? Justification. All of this that we've been speaking of today. It's one of those benefits of being born again. Yeah. And it's like just completely erasing the idea of justification. That's right. Completely erasing the idea of Christ doing something is all about us moving towards our way from God. That's right. And that's where the category distinction of justification versus sanctification is so important. Because you could say something like that in the category of sanctification, and it could be helpful. Like we're all called to pursue the Lord, to walk in holiness, and all these things. We're called to do that, but that's in the category of sanctification. That's not in the category of justification. So we've got to keep these categories separate in our mind uh, as we see, as we look at what God has done for us in salvation. Any others? Anything else? Yeah. So you touched a little bit on uh, faith alone and other works. Um, and it was helpful for me to understand when I was looking at this, why I was like, two things. One is the difference, and maybe you can touch on this. Um, 
that one works in necessary but not meritorious. Right, yes. And then the second is the difference between the Jewish mind and the Greek mind, how we talk, and I think we are confronting more Greeks and Jewish mind in which the inner self is real and manifested by the outer self. So when we have faith, that is, that is not true unless it's manifested by, by words. Mm-hmm. But in the Greek mind of thought, there's a dichotomy between the inner self and the outer self. So I can think whatever I think and feel whatever I think, regardless of what I do. Right, but right. The biblical, I think, the standard for this is that we cannot have our inner faith that is abstract. From the right, that's right, that's right. And I think when we saw about faith alone, it, it, it adds to that the necessary works that needs to be manifested that's right. as a proof mm-hmm. of that, which I can come from the Jewish yeah, that's right. So where, where do works play in then in the Christian life? They don't play in, in our justification. Our works are not a ground for our justification. But as we read in, Rome, in Ephesians 2, uh, God gives us works to do. We are called to, to obey him. Um, and so our works are an essential part of the Christian life, but it's not the ground for being a Christian. It's now that we are in Christ, this is what the life of a Christian looks like. We're called to walk in good works, called to walk in holiness. So works have no place here in justification, but in the Christian life, they absolutely do, but not to earn salvation, but to live out salvation. Yeah, so um, we're justified by faith alone, but but by a faith that is never alone, because the faith is joined by good works that come afterwards. Yeah, Rob, did you have have your hand up? That's right. That's right. Um, so you're talking about like Leviticus 18 says, do this and you shall live. Um, I would probably take a little bit of different view of that because of the covenantal context of the Mosaic covenant. So I don't want to jump into that right now. That's right. That, that is true. That is true. Um, I'll leave that alone for a moment, for, for the moment. We can talk later. All right. This is one of those fundamental truths we, we need to grasp, to see the glory of Christ, to understand our salvation, and to help us in the Christian life. Our salvation is not based upon living some level of godliness and holiness. We are sure in Christ. And may that be our comfort today and every day as we seek to glorify him. Let's pray and prepare to worship. Lord, we thank you for this incredible gift you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are the recipients of both the forgiveness of our sins, but also the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Oh Lord, may we see the glory of Christ, see his great um, mediation on our behalf as we now desire to worship and to praise you for this salvation that you've given us. Oh Lord, may we understand these things and live a life accordingly. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.